Welcome to the Mission North Shore podcast. If you'd like to know more about our ministry here at the Mission, visit us online at www.themissionnorthshore.org. Thanks for listening. God bless. Let's uh, let's open up in prayer, Father. We ask that um, that you open our hearts wherever we're at with you. You already know, so we pray that this morning we would come humbly. And we would allow your word to speak right to our hearts, right where we're at. Lord, we pray that maybe by the power of your Spirit this morning, you would even save souls as they come to know that Jesus is the only way and that he came on a rescue mission some 2,000 years ago because we needed a Savior. So we pray that you'd speak those truths deep into our hearts now. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as you all know, we have spent the last month, the month of December, celebrating Advent. And there are a lot of things that we've added to Christmas that don't really have anything to do with anything, right? And there's a whole lot of things that we do this time of year to prepare and that the world around us prepare for this celebration of Christmas. And even a lot of those things really kind of don't matter, right? We, we get all caught up in the presents and the traveling, and there's a lot of preparation for parties and giant meals and decorating everything in sight. And that's how so much of the world prepares for Christmas. But what we said together as a church uh, a month ago is that we wanted to prepare differently. We wanted to take these four weeks of Advent and make sure that Jesus was the center of our Christmas celebration, right? Now, there's some level in which that seems a little bit odd, doesn't it? That we got to make a special effort to center this holiday on Jesus because without Christ, there just is no Christmas. Like if, if you're not celebrating Christ on Christmas, well, what are you celebrating, right? It's in the name, Christ's Mass. That's what it means, a celebration mass of Christ. And so I hope for those of us who have been here for the four weeks that it's been helpful for you to focus and to center your attention on Jesus and all that it means for him to have come into the world. And so now, as we're at Christmas Eve, we've come to the very pinnacle of Advent. And our attention now turns to the motivation as to why Jesus came. Not just a discussion of what Jesus did when he came, we've talked about that, or how he came, or where he came, or to whom he came, but what we want to talk about this morning is the motivation behind it. Why did he come? And that is then the reason that we've entitled this message that Christmas is love. Because there was only one motivation for Christmas. And that was love. That God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. For God did not send Christmas, right? God sent His Son into the world. God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. And so when we really understand Christmas... What was its purpose? That the world might be saved through Jesus. And what was its motivation? 
that God so loved the world. So what I'd like to do is read through this text that we're turned to here in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, and then come back and uh, kind of examine it a bit. Beginning in verse 8, 1 John 4, 8 through 10, it says this, The one who does not love does not know God, and this is important, I have it underlined, for God is love. By this, the love of God is manifest in us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world. There's Christmas. That God sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. Here's Christmas again. And sent His Son to be a propitiation or an atoning sacrifice for our sins. These are deep, and rich verses, and they're all about the true motivation for Christmas. It begins there in verse 8 by saying this, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In John chapter 4, the apostle John is explaining what real love is, and he's explaining what godly love is, and how those who follow God ought themselves to love other people. That that love ought to be a major defining part of Christian character because it'll be impossible for us to represent God rightly if we don't have love for others because as it says at the end of verse 8, what? God is love. That's His very essence, His character, His nature is love. We can't represent Him unless we too love other people. Of course, this is an area where we, the church, have often fallen and gotten into trouble, claiming to follow Christ, but not living out both the command and example of Christ to love as He did. He gave us commands like John chapter 15, verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I loved you. John chapter 13, 35. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Now, that's a sermon for another day, another time. But it is the context of 1 John 4 that we're speaking about. And it is the context in which we're told by John that God is love. There's a proclamation there. God is love. It's his essence, his character, his very nature. But then what John does is he moves from the claim that God is love into the proof that God is love in the rest of verse 9. He says this, By this, the love of God was manifest in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world. Or another way to say it, or uh, another way a different translation says it, is that this is how God has shown and proved how much He loves us. That's what it's saying. This is how we know. This is how God has proven how much He loves us. And we understand that character is based on something that someone does, not on something that someone claims, correct? Character is revealed by action, right? In our world, words don't really mean that much, do they? 
because we've been lied to too many times. There's been too many boastful claims that people haven't upheld their end of the claim and they haven't been what they claimed or done what they've claimed they, they should have done. And so oftentimes in our world, words don't really mean that much. And so then old sayings develop stuff like talk is cheap or actions speak louder than words, all sayings that we've heard. And so what verse 9 is saying is that God has shown, not just claiming, but he's proven, displayed, and revealed to us how much he loves humanity in that, the rest of verse 9, that he sent his only begotten son into the world that the world might live through him, have eternal life. Now, God sent his son. One of the things that is revealed to us in scripture is that God exists in a trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit little difficult for us to wrap our minds around exactly how that works, though it is revealed to us in Scripture. But we're, we're also well aware of the fact that if we understand every single aspect of God, we would then be God because we know everything. So it's okay for the creator of all things and God Almighty to, to exist in a certain form that we can't completely wrap our head around. And so He is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God is one in three persons, exact same in nature, character, and essence, yet existing in three distinct persons. And what Christmas is, is God the Father sending the willing Son, God the Son, Jesus Christ, into the world. That's what Christmas is. And that's what the angel was explaining to Joseph when he appeared to try to explain what was going on in Joseph's life. And he said, now all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin will be with child and she's going to bear a son and you're going to call him Emmanuel. That's going to be one of his titles, Emmanuel, which translated means that God is with us, that God left heaven and stepped into this earth, that the baby lying in that manger in Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago was actually God in the flesh, the Messiah, just as the prophets had said. That's a little bit of a humbling thought, isn't it? That God left heaven and came to earth for us. And that's what Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 tells us, that Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created, and he's supreme over all creation. That baby in the manger that night was God in the flesh. And Philippians helps us a little bit to understand Christmas in what it says in verse 6. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 says, Though he, speaking of Jesus in context, though he was God, he did not think equality with God a thing to be clinged on to. He didn't hold on to those rights and privileges of as being God, but it says in verse 7, instead he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and he was born as a human being when he appeared in human form. In the end of verse 19, or sorry, verse 9, tells us that Christ came into the world for a specific purpose. That this God that left heaven and came to earth was actually on a mission. If you look there at the second half of 1 John 4, 9, verse 9, it says, God has sent his only begotten son into the world 
so that the world might live through him, meaning eternal life. Now, of course, that then implies, doesn't it, that apart from Jesus, there is no eternal life. God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might have eternal life through him. What the Bible teaches is that apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead. That's why Jesus gave us this terminology in John chapter 3, born again. When he said that everybody must be born again, he was speaking to a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. And Jesus answered him and said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus went on to say to him, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, speaking of a natural birth, which we've all had, But then he goes on to say, and spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Both are required for salvation. Natural birth, which we've all had, but then a spiritual birth, because we are spiritually dead. Romans chapter 6, 23 helps us here, because it tells us that the wages of sin is death. What we have earned, what we have gained, the penalty of a life in rebellion to God, not acknowledging God and living His will and way, is death. That's the bad news side of it. The good news side of it is for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the Christmas gift right there. You don't have anything under your tree better than that, I'll tell you that right now. That's the gift. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so what our humanity's sin did was create a separation between us and God. And here's why. It's actually really quite simple. He is holy. God is holy. And what that means is that He is set apart from anything unrighteous. There's nothing within him that is wrong or unrighteous. There's no sin within him. Yet we're all sinners, aren't we? Every single one of us. And so because he is holy and we've rebelled against him and we now sin, we are separated and spiritually dead, left helpless and hopeless with no way to approach God. We're we're left then spiritually dead in need of a Savior and somebody that can do something about our sin problem our sin condition. Here's a few more verses that'll help us understand this spiritually dead, made alive by God concept. Colossians chapter 2. We were dead because of our sins and because your sinful nature was not cut away yet. But then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all of your sins. And he canceled the record of charges against us, and he took it away by nailing it to a cross. What that means is though every single one of us have sinned, for every single one of us that come to Christ, when he hung on that cross, every bit of our sin and shame and guilt was placed upon him. And our payment was taken by him. Ephesians chapter 2 helps us as well. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God being rich in mercy 
Because of his great love, that's what we're talking about, right? Christmas is love. Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, we were made alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourself, but it is a gift. There's that Christmas gift, isn't it? It is a gift of God. And that's the point that the Apostle John is making here in verse 10, now in our text. Notice what he says in verse 10. In this is love. Do you want to know what love is? He's telling you. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and He sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. And so God's offer of salvation through Christ displayed then His perfect love and His unique love, because it's not based on us being lovable, is it? It's based on grace. It's not a single thing that you or I have earned, and it's nothing that we deserve. God was obligated in no way to do anything about our sin, but rather He was driven to do something about our sin. Why? Love. Because He so loved us. That's what it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrated His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, not while we were lovable or had done anything worthy of salvation, God demonstrated His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then verse 10 ends with this big, weird theological word, propitiation. He loved us and He sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Not really a word that we use a lot, is it? Just not a common word in our everyday vernacular, but it is a very, very important word when we need to understand the Bible. And it means an atoning sacrifice, that there's been this payment that has satisfied the righteous judgment of God. The the NIV goes ahead and and translates it atoning sacrifice anyway. It reads this way. It says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Atoning sacrifice, of course, means one who stood in our place. Speaking of one who took our penalty, that was a substitute for us. Meaning that Jesus was punished in our place, that all of our sin, all of our guilt, and all of our shame was placed on Jesus on the cross, and He died to pay the penalty of every one of our sins. That's good news, guys. Here's a couple verses to help us understand that. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also died for sins once for all, and notice what it says, the just for the unjust, or the righteous for us, the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God. Or 2 Corinthians 5.21, for God made Christ, who never sinned, to be a sin offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Or 1 Peter 2.24, He himself, speaking of Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body 
on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you are healed. He himself bore our sins in his body. That when Jesus hung on that cross 2,000 years ago on a hill outside of Jerusalem, every ounce of our sin, guilt, and shame was placed upon Jesus. And he bore every bit of it that we might be set free from it. And so Christmas then becomes a bit of an enigma. It's God's answer to his paradox. See, God by very nature, his essence, his character, it's who he is and he can't change these things. God by his very nature is holy, meaning that he's separated from sin and sinners. He's righteous, meaning he can only do what is right. He is just, meaning that he must judge things justly, therefore he must judge sin. But here's the enigma, here's the paradox, is the fact that he is also love. So he is all of these things by his very nature, holy, righteous, just, but at the same time, God's very nature is love. So the paradox is, How is it possible for a God of love to love sinners and still not compromise on His holiness? How could a God who is completely set apart from sin still have a relationship with sinners? How could God uphold His righteous standard, meaning that He Himself is righteous, How can he uphold his righteous standard and still forgive humanity? How could God be 100% just, which demands his judgment, and still have mercy on us? How is it possible for God to condemn sin and still show love? And the answer is Christmas, Good Friday, and Easter. Instead of the condemnation and the judgment that our actions deserve, God's response was what? Rescue. He himself came. Emmanuel, God with us. That's Christmas. He would condemn sin as a righteous judge, but then he would take the whole penalty upon himself. That's the answer to his paradox. Maybe a poor example, but possible way for us to understand this is if we thought about a judge in our day. We went downtown to the courthouse and we saw a judge sitting up on his bench and he was presiding over a case. Let's just say it was a thief that had stole a whole bunch of stuff and caused a whole bunch of trouble. And this thief was caught red-handed. The evidence was clear and undisputable. That was not an issue. And this thief was guilty and everybody knew it. The videotape was played, whatever you like. The evidence was clear and undisputable. A righteous judge must do what? To be a righteous judge, he must judge. He must find him guilty. And he must 
give that thief an appropriate sentence. If he's going to be a just judge, he has to, and we get mad, don't we, when judges don't. When, when we see a, a heinous crime happen and, and, and a judge just kind of slaps him on the wrist, and let, we go, that's not right. He's not being just. A just judge has to find him guilty, and a just judge has to give that thief his appropriate sentence, maybe 20 years or whatever it calls for. That's justice from a righteous judge. But then, what if? That judge stood up from his bench, took off his robe, walked down to the thief, took a key, unhooked the handcuffs and placed them on himself. He turned to the thief and he said, you're free to go. And the judge himself walked off to prison to serve the very sentence that he had given. And he now goes and does the 20 years. That's mercy. You see, he was both, wasn't he? He was just in his judgment. What was done had to be judged, yet he was merciful. He was just and righteous in his condemnation and his sentence, yet he was merciful when he took the sentence and the penalty upon himself. Guys, that's, that's the gospel message right there. The only difference is that our sentence was death, eternal separation from God. And it was Jesus who took it upon himself. And so now he offers freedom to all who will come to him by faith. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 5, verse 24. He said, I tell you the truth. Those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. And they will never be condemned because the judge stepped out of heaven and took the payment. They'll never be condemned for their sins, but they've already passed from death into life. And guys, that's the real meaning, the real purpose, and the real value of Christmas. And the motivation behind every bit of it was a pure love of God's heart. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We needed a Savior, and He sent a Savior. The angel appeared as those two beautiful girls were up here reading earlier. The angel said, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. It's a bad news, good news story. It's bad news because we needed a Savior. It's good news because He came. And the angel said, for today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. When the angel appeared to Joseph, the angel said, Mary will bear a son, and you'll call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. That's Christmas. And so as we prepare to worship with a bit more Christmas songs, I want to ask this morning if maybe there's somebody that's come in that's never made that commitment to Christ. You've shown up this morning and you say, it's my time. I want to know that Savior. I want to be saved of my sin. I want to know that every single shameful, guilty, and sinful thing I've ever done was paid for upon the cross of Jesus Christ. And I want to be free to have that 
relationship with God that Jesus came to restore. If that's you, I'm going to ask you to do a brave thing this morning, and I'm going to ask you to stand up right where you are. Don't stand yet, but I'm going to tell you why. It's a bold thing to stand in a group this large, but what Jesus says in his word is those that will claim me before man, I will claim before my Father. And those who deny me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And that's why when we say, hey, do you want to stand today and receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we do it publicly. And so if there's anybody here this morning that wants to make that stand, would you stand up right where you're at, and I'm going to pray for you and pray with you this morning to receive Jesus. If there's anybody here, it's bold and it's brave, but if you feel the Holy Spirit tugging on your heart this morning, then it's your time. Stand up right where you're at. If not, we'll go into a time of worship with Christmas songs. Is there anybody here this morning that knows that it's your day to come to Jesus? Anybody at all? Amen. Right on. Is there anybody else that wants to stand up? I'm going to pray with you in just a second. Is there anybody else? It's scary, I know. I stand up here every week. It's terrifying. It's really, really scary. But I don't want to let the moment go by and miss anybody else that knows that today is your day. Okay. Well, I'm going to pray with you. We can all pray together with her. Dear Lord Jesus, we ask that you would forgive us of our sins. We thank you for Christmas. We thank you for the fact that you left heaven and came to earth. We thank you, Jesus, that you didn't leave us to die in our sin, that we don't have to stand before you and bear all of our guilt, that you made a way that we might be set free. Lord, I pray that that beautiful truth would stir in our hearts right now as we begin to worship. We pray that you would uh, remind every one of us of these truths and that we would respond rightly to you. Lord Jesus, we ask that you'd fill this place with your spirit. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Amen.